guys. Let's raise a glass. We have Todd Goldberg in the house. Ooh, look at that. He's A, I believe. Yeah. Um, all right. So listen, Todd, you you seem like a happy and well adjusted, <laughs> but the stories within this yes. book right here, the low the low desert, they're dark, they're bleak, they're hopeless. It's a classic <laughs> noir. But let me ask you something. Does the personality of the writer, mm-hmm. you, matter when it comes to writing crime noir? That's a good question. You know, I think it does. Um, because while I um, I am a generally happy person, I should say, so for the viewers and the listeners, so today I'm particularly happy because today I was injected with a dose of 5G because uh, I got I got the Pfizer vaccine today, so my Wi-Fi is great. I have a whole Microsoft operating system in me. Is it is that the, is that the going uh, uh, thing now? Everyone so. says, and I'm also completely mm. like it was like the Matrix. They give me the shot, and I'm like, I know every song by Dolly Parton. Um, <laughs> but so yeah, I mean, I I think for the stuff that I write that certainly my personality comes out in it, you know, because Mm -hmm. I really have a good time writing the stuff that I'm writing about. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stories in the low desert that are, um, you know, fairly bleak. Um, But I think also like there's, they're counterbalanced by the stories where you can tell that it's a bleak story, but I'm having a joyous time writing it. There's, there's a story early Mm -hmm. in the book, the first story, actually, um, the Royal Californian, which stemmed from an idea I had probably 25 years ago, maybe less than that, um, but a long time no less, where I always wanted to write a short story about a noir short story about a guy who sings Brick by Ben Folds Five at karaoke. Mm. Now, if you don't know that song, listeners, mm. stop this for a second and go listen mm. to the the pop song about abortion and then come back. <laughs> And so I just had this notion, like, what guy is that? I want to write that guy. Right. And it's an absurd concept, right? Like, as a conceit, it's it's silly, right? It's just like a dumb idea I had. But then I have to build that world around it. And I'm going to build that world by, by building in as truthfully as I can characters who might reasonably react to that in a way that's different than you and I would. Hmm. Um so yeah, I, I think you know the the happiness that I have also comes from the fact that I'm pretty in touch with my darkest desires. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of have to be right. right. You, you have to be able to touch that part to write to write stuff like that. Yeah, um, I agree. But I think I think you you said something that is true is if you repress all that and you and you feel guilty about all these you know the thoughts that we all have as humans that to me is when you you struggle with you know being happy right. i think when you're when mm-hmm. you can't admit to yourself yeah. who you are or what you think and flaws and all you know acceptance yeah. that sort of yeah thing. and you know when you're writing as you guys know like you want to be sort of emotionally free and vulnerable you want to be open to right whatever right. might come into a story at, at any given time and so while you know, a lot of the times I I view myself as having a fairly good outlook on life. There was a period, say, from between about 2016 until about two months ago, <laughs> where I was feeling angry. Nothing happened. Yeah, was nothing happened. There wasn't anything time. going on. There. A lot. 
<laughs> and powerless and um, vengeful and all those things. And when mm. you sort of look at the history of crime fiction specifically, you know, a lot of crime fiction is predicated on what's happening in society at that time. You know, mm -hmm. when, when you look at sort of the rise of the pulps coming out of the Great Depression, like there's a reason for it, you know? People are feeling right. powerless. They're feeling like the world is chaos and they can't control it. They just want some dude to walk into a small town and kill everybody, which is you know, <laughs> continental <laughs> off, right? Um, and so I suspect some of the stories in this book stem from a little bit of that feeling too. Hmm. Well, I, I found Low Desert really entertaining and pretty fast read. And but I have a curiosity about it. Yeah. I, I found myself constantly chuckling when I'm reading about gangsters doing really bad shit like murder. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> so is that your intended outcome as a reader reaction, or is it just really just something wrong with me? No, I mean like well it depends. Like if you're chuckling in uh the short story uh Palm Springs, there's something really wrong with yeah, you. No. <laughs> yeah. So that's a yeah. story about a, a cocktail waitress who is working, you know, a series of dead end cocktail jobs at casinos right. while looking for her daughter who has gone, uh, for, who has gone missing. Um, if you girl. are laughing at your way through that, Mike, that's something that you need to get right with before your time. Got comes. it. Okay, I'm writing that down. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, you know, the 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 last several books that I've done about this hitman who hides out in Las Vegas as a rabbi, the Gangsterland books, if you don't chuckle at the at the concept, you're not even going to really enjoy the books, you know. And so I'm building in absurdity to a lot of the stories that I'm writing, because what I want to do is have you feel like you're in an absurd world, and then surprise you with um, an emotion that is really precise and human yeah so mm -hmm. even in a story like um like goon number four which is you know satire mm. by the end of that story I, I also want you to feel sort of like like i want you to laugh but i also want you to think like boy this dude's got a really weird life <laughs> well even the first one was kind pushing of pushing like people that. out the doors of cars <laughs> and, and stuff got a clown in the back seat with guns like what yeah that's that <laughs> well I gotta tell you, man, I love that story. That and that's I think you opened right. with that. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. That's the first we're, we're first gonna have to edit that, that out, story. actually. That's a spoiler. Well, that's I mean, that's okay. Uh, There's yeah. a people have been talking about the clown in that short story. Can I tell you guys where the clown comes from? Yes, please. Yeah, we love you. Uh yeah, because so, we talked about it before you came right. on air. So <laughs> I live uh, in Palm Springs, and it's a weird place to live. Like resort towns in general are weird places to live. Yeah. But so for the last 35 years, so when I was a kid, I lived here, I went to high school out here. And as you know, from having uh, my much older brother, Leon, um, my much older. Our, our mom was a society columnist. So she went to parties right. for a living. Like her job was to go hang out with B-movie actors and like mid-level crime bosses, write about them, have illicit affairs and do Ponzi schemes. Like that was her job. That's um, pretty good, actually. Not, it was a great life. Great life. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful retirement plan. Right? You have a 401k? Abrupt. No, I have a Ponzi scheme with little Mike <laughs> down the street. Pays better. <laughs> um, so from the time that I lived here when I was in high school, so I'm 50 now, so I was in high school from 
six or 85 to 89, something like that. Even back then, there was this guy who dressed up as Harpo the Clown. And you'd just go to places like a restaurant or a bar or an event, and Harpo the Clown would be there. He doesn't talk. He's dressed in full Harpo the Clown gear. And he's just silent doing clown shit. And you're like, what is happening? Why is there a clown here? What's he doing and, here? And everyone just sort of accepts it. There was one time, guys, when I was young, and then I've, I've seen it again several times since, where I saw Harpo the Clown and Fred the Hammer Williamson having a conversation. And I was like, <laughs> what? what is what happening? happening? <laughs> yeah, what just happened? And the I Matrix see, messed up. I see the hammer all over the place because he must live down the street from me. Mm. So that's also weird. I should have added him to the story. At any rate... Now, you know, I moved back to Palm Springs 20 years ago and I'll go into restaurants or bars or whatever and, and there's that godforsaken clown. He has, <laughs> like, he's just, he'll just show up into bars and people take pictures of the clown and he'll go off and do his merry business. He doesn't charge anyone anything. It's not like he's... But he's not working. He's, he's not, not working. He's not there working. He is working, but I don't know who's paying him. No contractual <laughs> obligations. Yeah, it's really weird. And then they're singing karaoke. There's this one bar in town, a bar restaurant called The Nest. And if you guys look it up, listeners, viewers, look it up. It's always read as like the hot night spot in uh, in the desert because it's open mm. late and it has food. After eight. Um, but it's <laughs> also eight. like where people over 70 with HPV just gather. <laughs> <laughs> And you'll go there. So descriptive. And just to be clear, guys, I don't go there. I only go there if like a tourist is in town. They're like, we've heard about the nest. I'm like, well, put on a hazmat suit and we'll go over. Um, (laughs) But you'll go in there on a Friday night and there'll be a bunch of like octogenarians, like, you know, moving to baby got back for reasons no one can figure out. (laughs) And out of the corner of your fucking eye, in comes the clown. Wow. It's highly, highly disturbing. Sure, it's not a Coachella. <laughs> it's very strange. There was one time we, my wife and I were out to dinner with two of our friends, and uh, the husband and the couple we were with has a real fear of clowns. And his back was to the door, and Harpo comes in. And, and because I've known this wow. dude since he was friends with my mom, he, he makes a beeline towards our table. <laughs> And like so, you're so imagine you're just sitting there eating dinner, and all of it, and you have a fear of clowns, and all of a sudden you look up, it's a fucking clown. Why? It's true. He was very upset by it. So oh, I wanted to pay homage. You did. Yeah, you did. And I want you guys to go look at Harpo the Clown at his website at some point because you can order toys now have to i feel like next time i'm in los angeles <laughs> oh I'm my gosh dude commute to <laughs> yeah you, dude you guys drive to the desert for for a night in the season so you know between october and may right i can introduce you to a clown <laughs> i don't, I don't know. know about that <laughs> well, Dan. one of the things that fascinated me as i read all these stories was there was a very there were very distinctive voices throughout um whether it be harpo the the silent clown um but yet I recognize Todd Goldberg in, in everything, yeah. even if I can't tangibly explain that. 
<laughs> when putting together a collection like this, how do you get into the persona of each character? Um, well, part of it is sort of understanding the ebb and flow of a short story collection itself. So when I think of how each story is going to come now, of course, I didn't write them in the order that you see them. Mm -hmm. But as I was writing them, I was becoming aware of how I was going to sort of stack the stones here. Um, and so that voice also becomes a function of when something emotional happens. So I'm adjusting the voice as I, as I would in a novel, speeding it up and slowing it down um, to address what I know is coming. So I'm setting you up for moments. I'm setting you up for emotional moments, comedic moments, and sort of what I think of as, um, as gasp moments. Because I'm hoping in this book, specifically, that there's a couple moments where you go, oh, shit. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, right. we, I won't reveal the spoiler and you guys know what the, the one of the big spoilers is happens late in the book about a character that, that you have questions about. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm setting you up with that with voice. And so it, it is a conscious effort on my part, even though story one and story nine might have been written a year apart from one another, or in some cases, several years apart. I'm, I'm doing that each time, but also I still want each story to feel like it comes from me. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, after 15 books or something, um, which I, I think is how many I've written. Um, thank you. Congrats. My, my uh, back feels great um, <laughs> from sitting right here. My entire life. Um, chiropractor, chiropractor. I go every week. I think that, you know, my, my readers are expecting a certain kind of voice. And it's like what I think it was Mike that said, yeah. he felt like he wanted to chuckle a lot. That's also something that's kind of hard for me because I still want to be able to write stories that don't have any jokes in them. Mm -hmm. So if I'm using the same voice for a satirical story that I'm using for a serious story, I'm manipulating your emotions in a wrong way. Um, and so that's why a story like say the title story, The Low Desert, doesn't sound like really any of the other stories right except for the ones that have that character in them uh the the sheriff lawman character morris drew um but they're all pretty much joke free like there's no funny moments in those stories and i think that that's another way for me to keep the reader sort of unsettled yeah that, it's true i think i was waiting not waiting for something to be funny or waiting for something shocking, but I, I, I found myself anticipating whatever was coming and I didn't mm. know what it was coming, but I was like, okay, is this, you know, is this going to be this kind of ending or this kind of, you know, climax? And uh, I was off balance the whole time in the best yeah, dude, way. Sean, I, Thank felt, you. I felt the same way when, when, when the, the story with the cocktail waitress, I expected something at the end. And then when it didn't, what I expected didn't happen it was still satisfying, mm. which is kind of weird. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. But, but here, here's something related, Todd. Yeah, you've written both first person and third person perspectives in the low desert. Do you, do you find it difficult switching styles? I know you said there's time in between the stories, uh, but do you find it difficult switching, like getting the head of one character and then looking at it? Yeah, it, it is hard. And, um, you yeah. know, earlier in my career, I used to write mostly in first person. And then... Um, a shift happened sort of in the middle. So my first 
two novels were first person. And then I had a short story collection after those first two novels. And then I wrote Burn Notice. And uh, Bird Notice was all in first person because you want right. to have that voice of Michael Weston that, you know, when you're a spy, you can use a modem as a bomb, dip it in nitroglycerin, have a cocker spaniel lick it. That's a chemical reaction. So you want to have the <laughs> voice. Not poodle. Jesus, it sounds just like it. <laughs> oh, God, it's perfect. <laughs> uh, it's, it's shocking. Um, I can turn anything into a bomb. Um, so after writing all those uh burn notice book specifically i gotta tell you i was i was tired of writing first person because yeah. that voice was so pervasive mm-hmm. like that michael weston voice you have to it has to be like the people watching tv are used to it's mm-hmm. got to sound like jeffrey donovan's vocal intonation that's interesting the huh. genius of, of jeffrey donovan's acting true yeah. um <laughs> <laughs> and listen I, I love those shows by the way so yeah. I, oh i absolutely loved it Dude, it's yeah. a wonderful show and i, I enjoyed writing burn notice but after like 10 seasons of it i was like so that's it that's his range that's that's it <laughs> <laughs> that's it okay all right and then and then when Good. he was in fargo you're like yeah yeah what? that's yeah that's it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so when I started writing Gangster Land and Gangster Nation, um, I knew I knew I was going to write those in third person because I'd written a short story about that character in third person, and it had been a, an effective and easy way for me to write it. Writing novels in third is easier for me now because I tend to switch point of view. When right. I was younger, I didn't really switch point of view that much because I didn't really know how. Um, and now it's sort of a function of being able to tell a more expansive kind of story in my novels but also just like oh god i'm so tired of writing this character oh i can go spend a month writing this other character and i won't i won't feel so bad you know um so in the short stories uh, as i was writing this collection i would go back and forth Uh, you know part of it is the function of the story um different kinds of stories require a different point of view um and i don't always know what that point of view is until I get about a page in and then I'm like, oh, this isn't right as a first person story. You know, I'm, I I feel it's too narrow. And I tend to use first person now more often when I'm writing about a person who's a little nuts. Um, And it it tends to be a a better voice for me in that. Like I can, I can capture that, that mania a little bit better. Well, Um, well, let me, let me ask you, I mean, this crime noir, I, I, does it function better first person as opposed to third person? Well, it depends. You know, I, I think in first person, the nature of the first person narrator is an unreliable narrator. Cause I believe all first person narrators right. are unreliable narrators is the essence of noir. You know, third person right. requires some checks and balances. And I think that makes mm. oftentimes, um, particularly short noir, uh, a, a little too truthful. And so if you're writing something a little longer, yeah, that third person can be just as unreliable as first person can. But I think the nature of, you know, the hard boiled voice is a first person voice. But I also like to challenge myself and do different things and see if I can achieve those things using a third person voice too. Hmm. We've kind of touched on it here and there, but you've written a number of books and short stories, obviously, we've already talked about, about the lives of people living the criminal life. What elements of that existence 
fascinates you so much that you seem to be kind of focused in on that. And, and, you know, and I don't say just you, but I mean, I think regular people, just regular day-to-day people have a same <laughs> Not just you, but regular people too, Doc. Because <laughs> we well, know Todd's a little different. I am a little different. <laughs> you know, it's funny too, because this is something that Lee and I have talked about often over the years is that Lee has always written heroes and I've always written anti-heroes. Um, you know, uh, he's always, he's always writing the good cop or, you know, the, right. the amateur detective, you know, essentially. And yeah. I've always written the bad guy who's trying to be good or the bad guy who's not trying to be good, but is trying to solve a problem, whatever it might be. Um, you know, for me, I, I think I'm drawn to criminals because they're wild cards. You never know exactly what they're going to do. You don't always understand exactly their logic and their logic is flawed because it's it's based on a flawed premise. Like I should do illegal shit. That's a flawed premise. (laughs) (laughs) And so therefore it makes every interaction with that character potentially really conflict driven. So in the, in the Gangsterland books, you know, about this hitman who hides out as a rabbi, um, you know, in every single scene, I want the reader to be concerned that the main character is going to kill the person that they're talking to. I want that in mm-hmm. every single scene. Mm-hmm. I want that tension to be that line. It doesn't matter if he's talking to a man, a woman, or a Shetland pony. There should mm-hmm. be fear like, ah, oh, shit, that, that's about to be <laughs> You're going to murder that horse. Yeah, he's like, he's going to fuck up that horse. Here it doesn't stay fair. He's going to become a glue mystery. <laughs> glue um so our horse I saw is meme actually about made that. from glue by the way or is this a i saw a meme about it it has to be true is it, it true? true it's on it the has internet to be. do we know it's on the, it's on the internet 100 what's yeah, white out made true. out of like what the badgers is that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just ground up badgers <laughs> ferret yeah ferrets make white out it's true well, have, have any There's of a these, lot of white out have <laughs> any real life gangsters or real life criminals approached you and, and oh. saying, hey, you didn't, you, you did this, or you wrote this, Ooh. or you said this. I mean, yeah. you- so I also know some people that have done some criminal things. So there's that. Um, and so I hear from them and I ask some questions, which is important. But there was, uh, this was two years ago, three years ago, I was doing a book event at the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. You guys ever been there, by the way? I used to live there. Because there is a Mob Museum. Vegas. I lived there for 10 years, man. Yeah. Of course, this yeah. is one of the first places you go. Oh, it's it, and it's a great museum, yeah. and, and my friend uh, Jeff Shoemaker um, <clears throat> runs it uh, basically. And oh, so cool. every time I have a new book out, aside from this time, I I always would go and do an event at the at the oh, mob. Dude, museum. that's awesome! Yeah, it'd be fun. So I was at the mob museum and signing books, and you know, feeling very very mobsterish because I'm <laughs> in a museum dedicated to my craft. And uh, a guy walks in and the ions in the room change. Like you guys have experienced this, I know. Yeah, like, yeah. Where you're like, oh, this is something yeah. happening here. The like, music yeah, starts what's going on. The yeah, matrix like, just reset. What's exactly. Up? And he walks up and he says, I heard you on NPR this morning when I was taking my kid to work. Mm. And I was like, oh yeah, I was, I was on NPR. He's like, you capture the way we talk really well in your books. I like that. You read that bit. I like that. You capture the way we talk. And I was like, what is happening to me? What, like, what? <laughs> just got off the red eye from Security. Jersey. He's like, you know, I'm, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, when you were reading that passage, I really liked it. And then you talked about the research you do and the people that you met. And I just, I really liked it. And, uh, 
I thought I'd come down and pay respect. And uh, uh, what's the book cost? And I was like, uh, <laughs> what's the nothing? Twenty six dollars. He's like, yeah, yeah. Give me, uh, give me the first one, and then you're here for the second one. And I was like, uh, yes. <laughs> like, do I pay you? I was like, uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's like. <laughs> There's a guy. <laughs> Talk to my guy. Yeah, I got a guy too. I got a guy. <laughs> and he's like, all right. And I was like, can I sign this for you? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sign it to, I guess, just to Tony D. And I was like, uh, <laughs> of course. Okay, Tony D. And I was like, he's like, all right, good job. <laughs> I was like, what? What is happening to me? <laughs> you weren't a you mob just got mobbed up. <laughs> But yeah, I was at the mob museum, but I didn't think like I didn't I didn't think like they considered it their spot. Like, yeah, I'm just going to the museum. I'll be there, honey. I'll be back. I don't have anyone to kill, so I'm just gonna go to the museum and see the guys. Like, what what would have been even better is if you would have looked at him and he would have walked out and you would have looked over and there would have been a statue of him to the right. It's like Tony D. Tony D. Tony D. But um, yeah, I, I I also have heard. By the <laughs> way, you did that accent pretty good. Yeah, it was pretty darn from, good. That's not bad. I do voices. Um, <laughs> to be honest, the the folks that I hear from surprisingly often are um, not mobsters, but guys that were in street gangs. Because I write about uh, street mm -hmm. gangs in in both Gangsterland and Gangster Nation, and a little bit in the Low Desert with uh, with Peaches Pocatillo who appears in uh, Gangster Nation as well, where they were just like, hey man, you really, you know, cool job showing like how this all works. And I was like, and also thanks for saying that we should have our own museum. Cause at some point in one of the books, I'm like, <laughs> Crips, don't bloods, see a come museum on. to the Crips and the Bloods, <laughs> right. but you see Different one buildings. Yeah. Dude, that's I was funny. Like, well, this is great. Like I, I have a, a huge fan base of gangster disciples. That's <laughs> you, you know. You know it's expensive. Not to the get gangster out of those disciples. Gangs. Or maybe no. It's expensive to get out of those gangs, Todd. Good luck. I, I know. Yeah. <laughs> now that you're in. <laughs> well, let's, since we're talking about Sal and and other characters, um, he's a character who's appeared in some of your other work, and there are a couple other characters within these stories who have. Um, there were a lot of characters whose narratives fascinated me and and kind of whetted my appetite for more of them. Uh, are there some of the characters who are new in this series that you think might appear in something in the future? Yeah, um, for sure. So the the character Morris Drew, who's the main mm. character of the title story, The Low Desert, mm -hmm. um, he actually, I first wrote about him in a short story in the 1990s. And then he appeared in my novel, Living Dead Girl, which came out in 2002, 2003, something like that as a sheriff in the small town of Granite City, which is based on um, the real town of Loon Lake, Washington, where Lee and I have written about 37 different books to take place there. Um, <laughs> What's going on there, by the way? Well, we used to fish there. We'd, we'd go there every summer to fish, and it's this strange little small town 25 miles outside of Spokane, but it's also just like, you know, crazy like militia shit out there. <laughs> good fishing and bad food and you're like and we we would sit out there and we'd fish and we'd read crime novels all day long and so we would also sort of imagine like well this would be a great place to set a crime novel this fishing spot <laughs> and so over the course of both of our careers and also our uncle burl bear we've both like without ever mentioning it to each other set stories and books and screenplays and stuff in the same exact place yeah, so, and so there's always a mention of loon lake or walla walla washington and 
and all the things yeah. that we do. Nice. Um, but so Morris Drew, who appears in Living Dead Girl, he's the main character of The Low Desert and of uh, The Last Good Man and The Salt in this book. And I've been wanting to write about um, organized crime at the Salt and Sea mm. 25 years. I've, I've wanted to do it. Wow. And you know, for a long time, I didn't think I had the skills yet, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, and this is this is the thing that I, I think you guys have all probably experienced yourselves, is like that moment when your ambition and your talent meet, mm. and you finally feel like you can write the stories you want to write. It's cool. Um, yeah. and I'm still waiting for that moment. But that's cool. <laughs> tomorrow. Just tomorrow. Tomorrow. Put it it might office. just be that I got that vaccine, and so I'm just yeah, you're with good, it. dude. Yeah, I got to get that I'm like, can I get the vaccine that also boosts my sales by 90%? <laughs> it boosts my sales. Um, it also makes me a full 6'2". Um, instead of the 6'1", that I clearly am not. Right. Even, you know? <laughs> um, so I'd wanted to write that story. And, you know, I've had the champagne problem of the last 12 years of my life of having books under contract that are not that story. uh uh-uh. Which is like that's a that's a huge champagne problem. It's like, oh my god, poor Todd. He yeah. had to write all those other books. Oh, you poor <laughs> bastard. Yeah, like what poor a bastard. Here are Times bestsellers for yeah. Mr. Goldberg. They had to write those books that paid for that house that he's in. We'll have a GoFundMe for you at the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't worry. All that all that time spent buying sweaters that people on Hallmark movies wear. You're like, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, so, that's right. <laughs> So we when talked I, about Hallmark movies with Todd. I mean, we'll uh, do that. Brother. Um, so when I sat down to do this book, I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try to at least write the short story for the low desert um, about like the, the 1960s there. And so I got about 10 pages into the story and I was like, I think I got a television pilot here actually. Like, Oh, oh shit. I think wow. that this could be a pilot. And so I, hit save and I called my film agent and I was like hey I got an idea and I'm writing it as a short story right now what do you think and she was like speak of it to no one <laughs> it's a script oh, nobody anything about this Sean knows that yeah, just knows that. just write what you're doing don't tell anybody and I was like right. All, right, all right and so when I finished the short story I wrote it essentially in a different style as you guys can probably see if you if you looked at it than a lot of other stuff in the book. Mm-hmm. And I wrote it in a way that is actually sort of more easily adaptable right. um, for mm-hmm. me or for somebody else. And and so I do see that as something I'll either write books about or or do for TV. Um, and I just finished adapting it myself. Um, the book is already out, you know, to, to folks who, you know, might want to buy it. So we'll see what happens. Nice. But that, I was that just character- telling I was just telling the guys, I had to reread the ending of that to see if it was exactly what I was reading. Like, my, like did my eyes really read it? It's like, is that how it's ending? Like, <laughs> wait a minute, I got to go back. Like, what was that conversation? I'm like, holy shit, it didn't end that way. I'm like, that's awesome. <laughs> so. It, it's uh, a weird well, little ending, but it's also, um, you know, I try to end short stories on ellipses instead right. of periods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so so it had me thinking and it had me thinking to like all right so what the hell is happening after that so right. it's pretty it's pretty cool yeah. but anyway crime and violence they're they're essential ingredients of noir the world is built upon it and an author wanting to write crime noir 
can't avoid it. Right. So your stories, although not all, they include murder, mutilation, broken bones, investigations into serial killers, kidnappers. But there is a is there a line authors can't cross? Is there something too dark or too taboo uh, that not even crime noir can handle? Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm tempted to say like you can't kill a dog because if you kill <laughs> a dog, yeah. like that's when the letters come. Like you could. Like you can stack up a mountain of corpses, set them on fire, and make s'mores over the fire. Right. <laughs> right. Good. And people were like, visceral scene. Visceral. I get it. Visceral. I get it. You clip a dog in the road while the guy is driving away. Like, how dare you? <laughs> how dare you do that to the fabric of American society? <laughs> like, I've got a fucking pyramid of dead people on fire. <laughs> I got, and I'm eating... I I'm eating toasted marshmallows on top of them. <laughs> 12 dead prostitutes. Yeah, when nothing. you kill that dog, no. Kill that dog, it's like, that's a step too far. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's a good question because, you know, I, I do kill children in this book. You, you did, yeah. I was surprised. Yeah, you did. Yeah. And uh, did. I, I kill men, women, and children in the book. But but I think, Todd, you don't... you. You don't. It's not that you skirt it. You you don't describe the killing. It's not. Yeah, it's not. Right. It's gross. after the. It's not fact. gratuitous. It's not gratuitous. Right. right. Well, I'll tell you my theory on this, and I I actually don't think anything's off limits. To be perfectly honest with you, but I think that there's a duty to be paid. Um, hmm. I don't write about a killing that doesn't have an effect on somebody. Hmm. I don't write about a killing that does not send a ripple out somewhere. Um, so even in an absurd story like Goon Number Four, which opens essentially with a guy getting killed, mm-hmm. that death causes our main character to begin to reevaluate what he's doing in his life. Yeah. And so I never want to just write about a bunch of red shirts beaming down to the planet, <laughs> getting shot. You know you're dead. You know. <laughs> yeah. He's like. I, I would watch Star Trek when I was a kid and those red shirts would disappear and I'd be like, well, no, wait a minute. Are nobody they gonna, cares about the red shirt. Are they going to do a funeral on the end? No. Of no. <laughs> no. no. Did that cares. person not like have a buddy nope. that worked in engineering? No, like, no friends. Be, he's the next guy going down. Yeah. So that's all right. He's got to bang some uh, weird yeah, so, check. Like, e- even then I was like, does not does Scotty not care about Ensign <laughs> you know, whatever the fuck his name is? And, and so like, even as a kid that would bother me like, why doesn't anyone notice all these dead red shirts? Don't wear the red shirt. Don't don't wear it. I mean, John Scalzi eventually wrote that great book, Red Shirts. But like, but it's so true. It's like, what? What? If, like, someone does no one notice the dead? Um, and so I've always tried, um, or at least subsequent to the to sort of having an awakening about violence in the books that I'm writing. Try to make sure that if I drop uh, a pebble uh, into the water, that those ripples are going to make the short, and yeah. someone is going to be affected by a death, man, woman, or child. And so, in effect, too, like this book is about a ripple. So there's a short story where a guy goes off of a building in 1973. That's the pebble dropping into the water. That guy's death is the reason all of these stories exist. And so I'm paying off his death with all of these other spokes that have come out of his death. Mm. So that even his death 
ripples into the life of a cocktail waitress in Palm Springs. Like it all ends up being connected in that way. So I don't think there's necessarily anything that's off limits, but I think you have to pay respect to the dead. And I think there has to be a reason for it. And I don't think that gratuitously killing women is a, is a plot point. Mm, Um, And I, you know, it's one of those things that sort of disgusts me about crime fiction and thrillers sort of post Silence of the Lambs because it's Silence of the Lambs that really set this forward is the using of young women as a plot point for serial killing and violence and murder and degradation. That being said, I have a book called Living Dead Girl whose cover is right behind me and there's a dead girl. <laughs> Sold so pretty good, didn't it? Pay no attention to the, <laughs> to the lecture you're receiving. To all this. Yeah. But I mean, it was like, it was after writing that that I began to have this this feeling. Um, and, you know, part of it is just about like recognizing how what we all do as crime writers and thriller writers has an effect on the way humans are perceived in reality. Yeah. And I don't want to be a party to um, to cartoon death, but I want to make sure that when I do things in my books, even in something that's absurd, that it has some sort of larger meaning to it. Yeah. Well, let's step a little away from the crime scene here that you involved in individually. You worked with another one of our guests as a uh, Mm co-author, Brad Meltzer. Yeah. And so you wrote what was a gangster nation, the house of secrets with uh, Brad. Uh, Just, just the house of secrets. House of secrets. Okay. So how did that idea come up (laughs) for the two of you to come together to work something like that? Mm. Um, it, it's a somewhat convoluted, but not that convoluted story, <laughs> hmm. which is um, Brad and I were both sort of weird places in our careers where Brad sort of was tired of having books where the reviews said, this guy does not know how to write a character. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I was kind of tired of having books where they said, this guy does not know how to write a plot. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Let's put that shit together. <laughs> um, and so Brad wanted to also start doing more co-authored stuff, which he does a lot of it now in nonfiction. And of course, with his children's yeah. books as well. And <clears throat> he actually uh, was friends with my brother. Uh, I hadn't met Brad yet, oddly enough. And Lee at the time was uh, writing books with Janet Ivanovich. And Brad said to Lee, like, man, I'd love to do what you and, and Janet are doing. You know, who do you think I could work with? Can you think of anyone that would be interested in doing what what I'm doing? And Brad and Lee was like, you know, you should ask Todd. Todd might be interested in it. And I think you guys would get along. And I was, I was, I was surprised when the call came, like Lee was like, Hey, I was just talking to Brad about you and we're going to, he, he's going to call you and see if you guys want to do a book together. And I was like, huh? What? (laughs) Cool. I guess. So Brad and I got on the phone. And the key thing here is like every guy named Brad and every guy named Todd suffers from the same problem. We're named Brad and Todd. We are That's sly. guys in movies who are in fraternities. Brad and Todd. We're given the names of guys with popped collars. There you go. Yeah. yeah let, me, All right. let me just do All it. Right. Let's do it. Looking good. I'm there with you. I'm there with you. Oh, yeah. Let me get that up there. Yeah, yeah. yeah where I yeah, got my, my khakis it. on too. 
Brad and Todd are very similar in history, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so we got along great just talking on the phone. And um, and he was like, look, I got an idea for a book. Um, I haven't, I can't quite crack it. If this seems like something you want to do, you know, let's talk about it. And so I ended up flying out to Florida and spent a week with Brad just getting to know him really um, and talking about story and talking about our theories of story and all those things. And it just, after that, like, it seemed like, why not? Let's see, you know, we're, mm. we're writers. How bad could this be? Yeah. And it was a really good experience. Um, it was hard. It was really hard um, because I think both of us um, are pretty type A and both of us are also, uh, this might sound shocking to you, <laughs> fairly polite. <laughs> polite type A's. A polite type A's. Yeah. And so it took us a while to figure out how to fight. And not oh, fight, yeah. like be angry with each other. <laughs> right. Yeah, but yeah. Just be like, hey, man, like, if you that put one working. more adverb in dialogue, I'm going to fly to Florida and I'm going to strangle you. <laughs> kill you. You kill Brad Meltzer? Come on. I will kill Brad Meltzer over an adverb. You can't, you can't kill Brad Meltzer. And he'd be like, if you'd write one more sentence about someone thinking about their mom, I'm going to fly to California and I'm going to strangle you. Like, we had to figure out who we were as a team. Right within sort of the construct of also having a deadline to write this book um so it was it was harder than i think both of us thought it would be um but it was also really enjoyable i just loved it and i learned so much from brad um you know we write completely different kinds of books really sure. mm -hmm. you know um but i i was a terrible plotter and he really needed to have someone um show him like how to make a more three-dimensional character that's not even the main character so that your secondary characters are just as round as your main character and i think the result of both of us working together actually showed up better in our next books his next book the escape artist was his best reviewed awesome. book he's ever written yeah. mm. you know it was and it was a great book and had a great cover too which was fantastic and my next book gangster nation was more intricately plotted and people were like, oh, my God, Todd finally learned how to plot. Um, <laughs> Dude, that's an interesting dynamic. Yeah. It, it really was. And the the other and more important aspect of it, and House of Secrets was great. It was great for my career. It, it was life-changing. You know, um, you realize, like, when a book spends two months on the New York Times bestseller list, like, that's a different kind of life than awesome. yeah, a different than what I was doing, right? Yeah. It's a different kind of experience. And it makes you understand the business side of it in a, in a completely different mm. way too. Mm. Um, but the bigger thing is I got like a brother out of it. You know, he's, he's just the, the absolute best guy. I mean, I think of him as like a big brother, even though we're the exact same age. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he's bald. So he, he is bald. Um, and, you know, we, what's great is... Um, you know, anytime we get on the phone and talk to each other, it could be six months, it could be five minutes. It's like we just got off the phone. Yeah, nice. Um, and I just love him to death. And he really has been just a huge champion for me and my work. Um, I love his family. Um, they're just they're just good people. Everything that you, you think is true about Brad Meltzer is true. Yeah. He's five foot four. Mm -hmm. And uh <laughs> <laughs> no, he's you guys great. Gotta start 
And you guys and, will start a band and call it Mama's Adverbs. Yes. <laughs> and we'd, we'd like okay. to do another book together. But again, in sort of the series of champagne problems that we have, yeah, neither of us have the time, time? yet. Right, right, right. Um, you know, his his new books with, with Zig, you know, are, are great. Yeah, they're awesome. He's got his nonfiction books he's writing with Josh Mensch that Super are Super successful. Yes. It's awesome. And his children's books, obviously, he's yeah. got the show on PBS. Yeah. Um, and so it's, I mean, I'm, I'm the number one Brad Meltzer fan in America. Nice. We love him too, but we're here to talk about you. So shut up. Yeah. More importantly. <laughs> right. There you, Mike. Uh, no, so. There you ask about him. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, let's talk about dialogue. Um, it, 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 it's very key in any story, but I think in some ways in noir, because of sort of the absurd qualities, it's, it's even more character or, or important. It's got to be whip smart. It's got to be concise. Right. Does dialogue come easy to you or is it something you really have to work on? It comes easy to me, hmm. to be honest with you. I'd like, I'd, it reads it's like probably a more compelling conversation if I say, no, I work on it constantly. It <laughs> comes easy to me. <laughs> um, and part of it, I think, is related to something I haven't been able to do recently, which is I just love to go out and eavesdrop on people. Yeah. There's nothing better for me than to go to Target with no reason and just walk the aisles and listen to people fight about like wool light. Like when, when you're arguing with someone about wool light, like it's What's about something on? more, you know? Pretty problem. Good. Yeah, there's another yeah. problem. <laughs> yeah. But like when, when you're like yelling at each other about what crest you're gonna buy, it's not about the crest, I assure you. Yeah. And so I love being able to hear those voices. And of course, I you know, it's hard to do that during the middle of a, a vast global pandemic. Um, <laughs> But I also feel like dialogue is the thing that as writers, that should be the thing we know how to do because it's the actual thing we do every day. Right. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't walk around describing the colors of the grass every day, but I absolutely have conflict-oriented dialogue every single day. Right. <laughs> with yourself. With myself. Yeah, the other voices. With people on the internet, you know, with, <laughs> with my wife, with my dog, uh, with my students. <laughs> Um, and Amazon so reviews with, with, with anyone on next door who I disagree <laughs> with, which is a lot of people. Um, but I also think that with dialogue, you should be able to tell the whole story in conversation. You know, I, I do stick to that sort of dictum of, of Elmore Leonard's of don't write what people skip. Yeah. Um, but that said, like, as you guys know, from having read the low desert, there are some stories in here that are super dense and don't yeah. have a lot of dialogue and so if i'm not going to write a lot of dialogue that narrative voice has to be so strong and so detail oriented that you're getting essentially the inner dialogue of someone in a very compelling way so i take both of those things seriously the the spoken dialogue and the conversations that run through our head like a newsreel right they do well there are no happy endings in short stories no in your short stories <laughs> none <laughs> yet but I got to tell you the way that the way you ended them, and, and we talked about this before we went on air. Yeah. They were satisfying to me, and I'm sure to everyone else yeah, who reads for them. Sure. But did you find wrapping up, in particular the short story? Did you did you struggle with it, or was it easy? Um, endings are hard for me in general, like fictionally, interpersonally. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not great at goodbyes. <laughs> um, I'm a but you gotta have that fatalistic 
like closing, right? It's it's noir, right? So it's gotta yeah. be that fade to dark type of type of type of deal. Well, I got some great advice years ago. I'm gonna drop a name. You guys ready on this one? There oh, we go. You guys want to lock in? I'm gonna start recording it. Wait, hold on. Yeah. It now better be time to start recording the show. Here we yeah. go. Clean um, <laughs> I was talking to Donald Westlake once. What? Look at you. You guys want to pause for a minute? What's his phone yeah. number? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, he's harder to reach now, subsequent to his death. Um, <laughs> he and Barbara Serenella have become harder to reach and less prolific. <laughs> Unlike Tupac. Um, yeah, he's he's not right. dead. No, he's not dead. <laughs> as Mike knows, as a Vegas resident, Tupac might not be dead. Oh, yeah. He's not dead. Yeah, he, he might still be dead. in front of the Marie Callenders on, on Flamingo. Um <laughs> Donald Westlake said, because I asked him, like, how, like, you were always great with endings. Like, how did you know where to end a story or end a novel? And he said, I knew a story or a novel was over when I thought the reader could write the next page. Ooh. And, I, and oh, it, that's I like that. really simple, right? But it's like, it, well, I almost did a lead. Oh, God, you did. Don't, don't break that shit. We don't have it ready. Listen, our insurance company dropped us, so we can't <laughs> can't pay for anything that's broken. Uh, but it's it's mind expanding when you start to really think about it yeah. as a writer. Like, right? Like, I have to have surprise after surprise after surprise after surprise, and when the surprises are over, that should be the end. Mm. When I've added everything up and the reader could write the next page, then I should be done. No, sometimes that means like I get two pages into something. I'm like, fucking Donald Westlake, man. <laughs> <laughs> that guy, like what micro is he now? He's not he doesn't he doesn't have a deadline. Um and then other times it's the thing that late at night when I'm working, you know, makes me make a change, you know, it makes mm. me go left when I could have gone right. Um because I think, you know, when when you make the choice to write about criminals, specifically instead of heroes, you are making the choice to write about people taking an unpredictable path. Yeah. When you're writing a detective novel or, um, you know, police procedural or something, there's a path. Like, yeah. or even, you know, even like a, like a Tom Clancy novel, right? Sure. But there's a path. With a crime novel, you are predicated with, with, a, with a criminal as a main character, you are predicated on their emotions and their passions and their bad logic. And so you always have to do something a little bit different to get to that end point. Hmm. And that's why I think, um, you know, those who do it really well and have done it really well for many, many years. So someone like Westlake or Elmore Leonard uh, or Daniel Woodrell, you know, someone like that. Um, they do it because their their characters are so complex and driven by so many exterior motivations and internal problems that the reader can never quite figure out what they're going to do because that character is still searching for the thing that's going to make them feel good or happy. Oh, or right, right. You know? Yeah. And I think about this as it relates to Daniel Woodrell a lot. He's one of my favorite writers. Um and I think he, because his books are so short and so powerful, he, he doesn't get credit for being a great master plotter of things. But when the main plot of a book like Winter's Bone is, you got to find your dead father or you're going to lose your farm. Like, 
well there's not a lot happening there right <laughs> so what you have to do is make the the internal machinations of that main character read dolly and the external um embodiment of those problems so emotionally complex that it drives us forward when we sort of intuitively know at the end already well they're probably going to save the farm yeah. So what what gets us there? What what allows us to be engaged long enough to get there? And it's got to be this character going through some shit that we can't predict. No one could have predicted when they started reading Winter's Bone, oh, she's going to go out in the middle of the night with a bunch of crones who just beat the shit out of her, find her dead father, chop off his hands with a chainsaw underwater and drop him off at the, <laughs> at the Bill Bondsman. Like, That's never coming up. Yeah, I like, never that, saw it. Like, no one, when they opened up that book, is like, oh, I know what's going to happen. She's going to find her dad in a swamp with some crazy-ass crones. They're going to get that, and they're well, going to, like, no one. Well, that's why I, I think, you know, crime noir, like, crime noir is is so character-driven as opposed to plot-driven. Like, it's mm -hmm. all about the character. Like, what, right. what, like what's going on? Yeah, you can't sure. expect it unless you know what's going on inside the character's head. But, hey, boys, let's raise a glass, because... Todd has gotten through the traditional portion what? of the interview. How did that happen? The glass is empty, but I'm going to raise it anyway. Mm. Well, I'm gonna, mine's not because mm. I refilled it. Mm. Delicious. Mm. Delicious cup. So now we're going to go with the lightning round where we're going to ask you stupid questions. Ready. And hopefully you get we get stupid answers back. Not that they were before, but I was made for this. <laughs> I, I have to, I do have to apologize and, and sort of also kind of take credit. I actually, it was the first time I've ever had to tell a guest to shut up. I, I told, I told you to shut up about, about Brad Meltzer. That's the first time it's ever happened. <laughs> you did. I, we're going to edit that out. We're going to apologize that out. Oh, no. and also listen. <laughs> Brad Meltzer is awesome. We love we Brad. No, he is. I know. I'm going to say that. All right, so lightning round. We're going to ask three questions. I'm going to start off. I'm going to ask three questions. Mike, Sean, they're going to ask three yep. questions. Right. So Mike so talked. Nine questions in total. Nine <laughs> questions of stupid. They got to be stupid answers. Just if they're not stupid answers, they're not going to be funny. And then Lee was funny. And we need you to be funny. because it's just. I, let's, let's be clear here. Like, I think the four <laughs> of us together can admit something important. Number one, I'm better looking. We got that part. Okay. But also just right. funnier in general than my brother. <laughs> there it is. Since there you're is. here with us, Colin has been dropped. Like, there it is. We will, tout this, we will tout this show as the funniest Goldberg. Yeah, like, oh my great. gosh. Amusing Sean. guy, funny, nice, generally. Yes. It's good looking yeah. and funny. It's crazy. Not quite as good looking and not quite as funny. <laughs> I continue with your dumbness. You know what? And and that ends the show. Let's end it right there. No. All right. So, so I'm going to ask my first question. Uh, Mike talked about laughing while reading your stories, and I laughed a bunch too. And I found for some reason I was thinking of a line from The Godfather. Um, you had nothing. Godfather has nothing to do with your your story, but um, there's a line in it where it says, "With a with a whack a guy, they're like in the middle of um, not a cornfield, but there's like." Uh, it's Jersey, so it's like weird, yes. not weird, but I don't know what the fuck it is. But anyway, they're on the road. He says, "Leave the gun." Take the <laughs> they're on the road, but right. it's not on the road. But they're like right. in a dump area. But they said, "Leave the gun." Right. Take the cannolis. Right. They just shot the guy. Take the cannolis. So if you were in that scene, what would you be telling the person to take out of the car? Well, I would actually quote Valley Girl. I'd say, "When they attack the car, save the radio." <laughs> <laughs> that that may be the first 
Godfather to Valley Girl segue I've ever heard. I'm not gonna. I never saw that coming. No, I, the, just like his books. No, it's the. <laughs> I say it every time I leave the car. Like if if we go to the grocery store or something, and my wife's like, oh, "I'll be. I, I want to finish this text." I'll say, "All right." When they attack the car, save the radio. All right, <laughs> beauty. <laughs> All right. All right, so Philip Marlowe has been played by Bogart and Mitchum, right? But it's been, forty, I think, 40-plus years since it's been remade, uh, since Hollywood loves to remake stuff. Who would play Marlowe now? Who would make a good Sam Marlo? Rockwell. Oh, God. That's wow, I never would have thought of that. <sighs> I, I think he would be a great if – he, if he doesn't sort of play funny, I think right. he'd be a great noir detective. I'd watch him act the phone book. I love that guy. Yeah, no I think kidding. he'd be. I think he'd be right. terrific as that. Yeah. Or also maybe um, that would be pretty cool. Chris Pine, someone like that. I'm taking his lead every day. Chris Pine. Chris Pine in Hell or High Water as Marlon. Yeah. Oh yeah, he's freaking great yeah. in that movie. I forgot that was an awesome movie. That's that last scene. Mm. Shit, man. That last scene when he's on the when he's in the front of the house with the uh, with Jeff Bridges. And they had that conversation like. Why don't you come on by one day? We can end this conversation. Maybe I will. Like, oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> Love that scene. There's a reason why he's an A-lister. There's a reason yeah. why. All right. So your brother Todd, I mean your brother Lee, has told us about the Lee Goldberg Facebook group page because hmm. uh, there's a bunch of Lee Goldbergs. <laughs> there are also a bunch of Todd Goldbergs. Oh, are there? There are. Huh. Um, but from the way you just said that, I'm assuming you're going to answer this in the negative. <laughs> Is there a Todd Goldberg Facebook group? There's not. And if not, you have to make one. There's, yeah. There's not. Um, the only other Todd Goldberg. So, like, Lee has, like, five different TV weathermen. Yeah. That have the name Lee Goldberg. <laughs> right. Really weird. Because as, as a people, Jews aren't great with weather. You know, it's just like, yeah, it's going to be hot. We're going to be in the desert. <laughs> they got God. What are you talking about? They don't want a good weather. They got yeah, God. Like, uh, here we are in the desert. Another another thirty nine years. What's the weather? <laughs> okay. Um, the only other we're getting mana. I, we're good. Like I've encountered a Todd Goldberg on Twitter who is some sort of like tech bro guru. Wait a minute. And sometimes people will tag really? me accidentally, and I'll give them advice. Like, oh yeah, we'll get a twenty pin thing and plug it into the doodad. Um, but no, there's not a Todd Goldberg group, I don't think. Oh man, you need to make mm. one. All right. All right, my questions. All right, I'm ready. Why were you the family favorite child? Well, you know the the thing with the youngest child, of course, is by the time I came along, everyone was so beaten down and sad by. <laughs> Poor Lee. By the three previous children that had come along. And so I was adorable and funny. So I was well loved from an early age. Mm. Um, Also, I think, um, you know, and this is true, I am the most loved. Yeah. It's just true. The youngest always is. The youngest always is. But also, um, I'm actually a bit of a peacemaker. And uh, my sister, Karen, who is the second oldest, she and I, I think, have a lot in common in this regard, where we're both sort of like, all right, we're going to solve this problem and this problem, and we're going to make it all go away. Like, we Mm -hmm. can talk to, when our mom was still alive and was being insane, 
Karen and I could talk to our insane mother, whereas Lee and our other sister Linda would just be like, nope, she's fucking dead to us. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta have both sides in the family. And I think that's probably what makes me as a a professor, so I I direct the graduate school in creative writing at UC Riverside. And I think to have that job and to have a bunch of writers, like for you to be in charge of a bunch of writers as the faculty that work for me, and then in charge of a bunch of writers of the students who come through the program, like you can't just be one of those people who flies off the handle. You gotta be a person that can listen <laughs> and can talk and can empathize. Sure. Um, and if need be, can be a little charming um, periodically mm-hmm. if you have to, to make both you and the other person think you're pretty great. Um, <laughs> and so I think that all played a role in, uh, in being the favorite child. But to be honest, the dog, Sam the dog was was everyone loved her more than me. <laughs> also, she shit on the floor less. Hey, bumps. <laughs> All right, if you Chris lived, has actually left his body. Chris has li- left his body. <laughs> if you lived in the 1930s and you had to join a crime family, which one would you have chosen? Ooh, I might have chosen. Um, the green ones. Do you guys know about the green ones? Mm-hmm. So the green ones <laughs> were a crime family in the Midwest and they ran steak distribution. <laughs> <laughs> and so they were in they were in the, the meat game. Not kite so the port guy. The port guy. From like Kansas City all the way up to Illinois, they were in the they were in the meat game. I'm like, hey, look, I don't take a lot of drugs. I mean, I live in California, so edibles are fine now. Like I can, I can do that and you know, listen to Jesus and Mary Chain records and feel content with myself. But in the 1930s, like if I could be like busting kneecaps and then getting a fillet. I was gonna say, you're using the product? You using the product? Yeah, like get, get me my ribs. Like, I can get that. Like, I'm, gonna be, I'm, gonna be running, I'm gonna be running the rib gang. The All right. Well, game. then, then my third my third question is this: So if now you're a gangster. You need a nickname. What is it? Mm-hmm. Well, my students call me the Todd Father. <laughs> Todd Father. That's I perfect. like that. That's that's actually perfect. You might be a little risking on that one, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, although I've always wanted to be one of those guys who had a nickname that was was just so simple. Like all those guys are like fat Tommy and you see him. It's like, well, yeah, Tommy's fat. (laughs) Or, you know, big, big, you know, big nose Kate. But yeah, like, so maybe they just call me like Todd the Jew, you know, like, oh yeah, he's a Jew. You you can't be made then. Todd J. Todd the Jew. Like, oh yeah, we go to him for, for the Jew thing. (laughs) For Jew. Like what kind of Jew things, you know, Google. (laughs) A brisk. Well, brisk. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll records. <laughs> Turny stuff. He's our accountant. Counting. Um, ophthalmology. <laughs> Neurosurgery. So my, yeah. my first question also relates to your name. Um, what happened to the other D? <laughs> this is a good story. Um, so Still I am right. named for a man uh, named Todd who helped smuggle my grandfather's family out of uh, Russia in 1919. What? Oh, yeah, that's a real so, story. So in Britain, which is a country to the on the right. other side of the Atlantic, yeah. um, 
Todd is frequently spelled with only one D. And this was a British man who helped uh, smuggle our family out of um, actually what is Ukraine. So our family, um, our great grandfather came to America in at about the turn of the century. He and, and one of his brothers, one brother was out in like Sitka, Alaska. And then my great grandfather mm. um, ended up in Walla Walla working in hides and wolves and things like that and left the family in um, Bar, Ukraine um, while he was making money and then essentially paid for everyone to get out of Ukraine, um, which was at the time in the Pale of Settlement um, as the pogroms were going through. So right. he smuggled them out in 1919 with the help of this man named Todd. My, my next question is actually a write-in from somebody in, in jail who has a $100,000 bar. <laughs> uh, now, <laughs> but actually, Palm Springs, you live in, in it's kind of a, a nutty place. Um, what is the craziest urban legend that you've heard about? <laughs> this is a good one. So it's a funny question. You should ask this. So... You guys all know that Bob Hope, maybe you don't know, Bob Hope lived yeah. here for yeah, a yeah, thousand for sure. years. Yeah. And so when you drive down the road, you can see Bob Hope's house on top of this mountain bluff. And as a kid, when I was living here, there were these little homes. So his house is on top of this mountain bluff. And then there's um, a bunch of houses that are built into the side of the mountain just adjacent to it. And then there's an expanse of open desert and there's these weird little old block homes that were built there that were crumbling and the urban myth and it's somewhat based on reality what we'll get to is that a bunch of the little people from the wizard of oz moved right there and built tiny little homes and that bob hope his security guards helped keep them safe in this little town, which had a name that is not proper to use anymore. Um, and so at night, when we were in high school, you would go and you would try to break into the little town. Of course you would. And go rummage through their homes and yeah, stuff. Sure. that were these ruins. And it was like this profound urban legend and so you'd go there, and, and part of the urban legend was that it was guarded by a giant, like, which is a, like that's like that's the the stupidest part of it. But you'd go there, and it was down this long desert road, and there'd be a, there was a chain link fence, so you couldn't just walk into this this little area. And there's a giant African American dude who was a security guard. Oh my gosh! Like, a, and not giant, like nine feet tall, but like six foot five and of substantial girth. And you're like, holy shit! Like, this is an enormous man here. Maybe this urban legend is true, and it would perpetuate for like years and years and years. And so, I don't know when it was. I, oh, it was. I guess it was when I started the MFA program. So. The MFA program that I run for UCR is a low residency, which means that the students are only in person for 10 days twice a year. And we meet at a beautiful resort in, uh, in Ranch Mirage. And so one night I was out to dinner with a bunch of the faculty and we drove by uh, Bob Hope's house. And I was like, in. do you guys want to hear a stupid urban legend? <laughs> 
And so I tell them this whole story and everyone's like, that's nuts. Like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And then they start Googling around and they're like, apparently, like, (laughs) it's somewhat based on reality that there was a few little people that happened to live in that neighborhood. It was sort of a movie colony area over there. And so there was a house that was disproportionate to the other homes, but it wasn't, in fact, a gated community full of little people guarded by a giant. Wow. So that's that's one of the more profoundly stupid urban legends that is somewhat based on truth. I knew there'd be one, there'd be one but that dude. exceeded expectations. Last questions, last question's easy. Uh, if there's one thing, one single thing Lee would not want you to say during this interview. What yeah. <laughs> Do it. Come That's on. Okay. Uh, nobody's going to watch this. Uh, no one's watching this. You're good. Just the say thing, it. The thing about Lee, of course, is you have he three sisters. Share a trait, which is I'm going to tell you the worst thing about me so that you don't find it out. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, open book, that guy. Um, I mean, the dude wrote for dolphins on his own accord. <laughs> He did admit know, that. Right? He, he gave it a personality. Yeah, he gave a, a dolphin a personality twice. Um, <laughs> yeah. And the guy said he got it wrong. Right. The showrunner. <laughs> was that for Flipper or for Sequest? I don't remember. Flipper, I, I thought. What? <laughs> Lee, I don't think, had a single drink of alcohol or made a poor choice until he was about 50 years old. And so. <laughs> He started, show. he started drinking lemon drops <laughs> in his mid-50s, like five years ago. No, 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 that's not normal. <laughs> and he'd say things like, and I'm going to, when I, when I talk, of, when, I, when I speak of my brother having his own dialogue, I, this is the voice I use. Because he gets a little high-pitched. He'd call and he'd say, Todd, let me ask you something. When you, when you drink, do you drink? To be calm, or do you drink to be elated? And I'd say, sometimes I just drink because it feels good. And he'd say, Oh, I've started to drink these lemon drops, and I tell you, it really puts me to sleep at night in a really great way. Like I just fall right to sleep. And I have you ever had a lemon drop? I'd say, Well, since I'm not a 24-year-old girl, no. I've not had a lemon drop. <laughs> Poorly. He'd say, Poorly. well, we go to Mastro's and they make the best lemon drops there. I'll just go there, I'll get a steak. Valerie will get a steak and then we'll just drink lemon drops the entire time. It is like just- Mickey Mouse. <laughs> and I'd say, you should try it with scotch. And he's like, oh, scotch is disgusting. <laughs> so this is the prelude to a larger story. Oh God. So, we, we have an uncle uh, named Uncle Stan. And Uncle Stan um, is, a, is a wealthy man. Uh, Uncle Stan used to own the Seattle Supersonics. Oh, boy. Oh, okay. The, which is a good job. Um, Not a bad and so whenever, I, whenever we go up to Seattle, like for book events or something, we always stay with Uncle Stan because he's, he's got a great house right on the water. And so one time, this was like, I don't know, 15 years ago, Lee and I were up at Uncle Stan's and uh stan says hey uh, i've got a bottle of like 100 year old mcallen oh my let's God. open it up and i'm like <laughs> let's open that up 
Let's absolutely open up the 100-year-old McAllen's. (laughs) That's a stupid (laughs) statement, right? And I'm like, yes. And also, by the way, you can always just say, "I'm we're we're doing that," and I'll say yes. And Lee's like, "What's that?" I was like, Lee. It's gonna be scotch that's so smooth. It's gonna be like drinking, like movie theater butter popcorn or yeah. popcorn lemon drop. Like, yeah. That's how smooth it's gonna be. <laughs> I was like, well, I don't really like scotch. I was like, stop speaking, <laughs> stop speaking. <laughs> Uncle Stan, who loves us, is gonna gonna bring us a bottle of scotch that costs more than your house for us <laughs> to drink. Like we're in the cask of Amontillado right now. Don't fuck it up. <laughs> And so Stan brings it out and he pours it. I take one sip and I see every Evan. age I've ever been. Like, yes. Evan. Evan. <laughs> like I'm coming out of the womb. Oh God. I'm 15. I'm 25. I'm 30. I'm a hundred. Stardust. Like I see the possibilities of human life. And God. I see God. Yeah. And Lee takes a sip. And spits it out. Oh my god. $500. I don't think we can have him on anymore. Spits it out. It's like, oh, this is terrible. (laughs) It's like like drinking wood. (laughs) And my uncle's like, did you stab him? Did he stab him? (laughs) And I'm like, let me let me go ahead and let me grab that from you. Oh my god. (laughs) What is wrong with you? You're the younger brother. Like, what is wrong with he's you? Like, that was terrible. That was just horrible. What? Get me a lemon drop. I'm like, <laughs> Uncle Stan just gave us a sip of what a different life could be like for us. <laughs> and you spit it out. You, you can't get closer to God. What are you doing? <laughs> like sometimes, you know, like you'll get a bottle of Macallan 30, right? Like someone mm. will be gift you a Macallan 30 and you that's like, not well, sometimes that's a rarity <laughs> yeah that's like it's a special occasion like oh someone died and yeah. you both hated that person yeah. someone buys you a bottle of Macallan 30 it's oh smooth God. it's great it's delicious you don't drink a lot of it you know it's a special occasion Macallan 100 or whatever it was it's like oh yeah and the only time that this is released is when um the Shaw has been deposed <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I don't know how we end on a better fucking note than that. And, so, and, Lee, sound, and Lee sounding like Pinocchio. We, <laughs> we now that drunk Lee, drunk Lee sounds like yes. Pinocchio. I'm a real boy. I don't drink. <laughs> Guys, let's raise a glass. Todd, you, you, you exceed. Oh, yeah, lime. <laughs> so. <laughs> Hey, boys, uh, listen, Todd Goldberg, mm-hmm. one funny son of a, mm. you get it. Not only that, he writes some kick-ass noir. I mean, yeah. you read this stuff and you're Brilliant. just like, man, this guy's good. Yes. His dialogue, his plotting, his characters, they're stupendous. And <laughs> is he funnier than his brother? I don't know. Mm. But he's a funny bastard. Yeah. And we loved having him on the show. So let's raise a glass. Todd Goldberg. Sir, you are welcome on the show anytime you want to come on to promote anything. Buy the book. Buy it. Buy the Three book. Times. Later. Yeah,